Hello and welcome to another episode of the Intangible Podcast. And today we have Professor Magnus. Hi, thanks for having me. No, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And you know, it's it's been it's been um a few weeks, maybe even a few months since we've had our our last episode. So it's great to you know get back in a flow of things. And yeah, I mean, I my the people who listen to the podcast know that I always start with the same question. So what, you know, inspired you to become an archaeologist? Yeah, well, um, I actually wanted to be an archaeologist since I was 12 years old. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that was uh, thanks to a, um, a a history teacher in seventh grade who introduced us to the ancient world. And uh, I fell in love with uh, ancient Greece and particularly ancient Athens. Mm-hmm. And uh, ever since then, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I also was finding fossils of shells at Girl Scout camp, even though that's yeah. not technically archaeology. <laughs> uh, and I also had the usual childhood fascination with dinosaurs. But anyway, it all kind of came together. And uh, ever since then, I wanted to be an archaeologist. Uh, I actually have a ninth grade yearbook photo that underneath says ambition archaeologist, so I can prove it. And um, and my interest was was always in the classical world. So um, sort of uh, <laughs> a one track, a one track mind, basically, since then. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. And I guess we're, we're here now. So, you know, what what does your current work entail? Right. Um, I guess we could start with UNC and then we can move on to the field. Right. Now. Sure. Um, so I've been at I. I uh, you know, I taught at Tufts University uh, outside Boston for 10 years before I came to North Carolina. And in 2002, I was invited to apply for my current position at UNC Chapel Hill. So I've been here ever since. Uh, I have a, a very interesting kind of professional trajectory in that uh, my my undergraduate degree is in archaeology and history from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, my PhD is in classical archaeology, so Greek and Roman yeah. archaeology from the University of Pennsylvania. And when I was at Tufts, my appointment was in a department of classics, actually joint appointment in classics and art history. But mm. I was hired there as a classical archaeologist. Um, mm. When I came to UNC, uh, my position is in religious studies, uh, actually in early Judaism. Mm. I kind of joke that I have really no qualifications for this position aside from being Jewish. But <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it was kind of interesting that I ended up as kind of the random archaeologist in a department of religious studies. And uh, it sort of happened because um, I work in Israel in the time of Jesus. So think, you know, kind of biblical archaeology. Yeah. Uh, and um, and so the position that I'm in early Judaism is basically Judaism in the time of Jesus. But it's been it's been an interesting learning experience for me. I had no formal uh training certainly not after high school or you know exposure to religious studies yeah. or for that matter jewish studies or judaism mm-hmm. um and uh i've i've learned a lot <laughs> along the way yeah. and it's also influenced the direction of my own research and my research interests right and also in terms of the setting the academic setting that i'm in the kinds of conversation partners that i have in my department and also in other departments uh, so, uh, so that's, that's UNC. Um, my, the courses that I teach are mostly undergraduate, uh, courses. Um, and, uh, I generally try to, well, I have one course on sort of an intro to early Judaism that I do every fall, but mm-hmm. aside from that, I try to offer courses that sort of combine my field of interest and specialization with, um, 
sort of an appropriate that are appropriate to religious studies or Jewish studies. So, you know, I do um well, I call it here New Testament archaeology, but it's really the archaeology of Palestine in the classical periods is what it is, post 586 BCE. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then things like Dead Sea Scrolls. This semester I'm doing an undergraduate seminar on ancient synagogues, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so that's uh, that's largely what, you know, what I do at UNC. I'm very fortunate at UNC that we have a a large community of archaeologists uh, across the faculty. I noticed that Donald Haggis is is yeah. on your own board there. And, yeah. and actually, uh, you know, a good colleague of mine, you know, Donald and I uh, go way back. We we were we we were volunteers on the Agora excavations in Athens in 1982. Really? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's been he's been a huge help throughout this process. I have to say, he's right, been... right. So you know, we have a we have a large community of of archaeologists, including classical archaeologists here, and it's uh that was one of the things that attracted me was was you know the opportunity to interact with other archaeologists across campus. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, that's that's UNC. Yeah, and I, I know you touched a little bit about this idea. You talked a little bit about this idea of biblical archaeology, right? And I think it's pretty self explanatory. But do you mind just, you know, um, expanding on what that is? Because I'm sure, sure. There's a lot that we might not yeah. think about. Yeah. Well, and actually, it's not it's not uh, self-explanatory. It should be, yeah. but it's not. Yeah. Uh, because the problem is, how do you define the Bible? What is the mm-hmm. Bible? Because the Bible is different things to different people, right? The, the Hebrew Bible is different from a Protestant Bible, is different from a Catholic Bible. They contain mm-hmm. different books in different orders. Uh, and so on. So um, what what anyone would call, therefore, by way of extension, what you would call biblical archaeology would would differ. Uh-huh. And very, very interestingly, in the United States, in academic settings, by which I mean in like universities and stuff like that, uh, biblical archaeology traditionally is defined as the um, as the archaeology of, I'll call it Palestine, let's say what is today Israel, Jordan and the Palestinian territories generally defined as the archaeology of Palestine in the Bronze Age and Iron Age. Mm-hmm. Uh, the period, the periods that are basically described by the Hebrew Bible, um, uh, so before 586 BCE, uh, the periods of the Canaanites and then the Israelites, okay. but not uh, the later periods. So, for example, the time of Jesus is not included generally in what is defined as biblical archaeology in in these kinds of settings in the U.S. I think that would be a little counterintuitive to some, right? I know, right? You would think that, right? And so I actually wrote a paper about this, which I'm going to present uh, the weekend after next at a conference in in Houston, Texas, about why this is the case, because it is completely counterintuitive. And therefore, right, and therefore in the U.S., I'm generally in, again, in these academic settings, not the popular mind, Mm-hmm. not considered to be, I'm not considered to be a biblical archaeologist. Uh, so I often describe myself as a, cla- well, I'm trained as a classical archaeologist. So I'm either a classical archaeologist who works in, um, who works in uh, Syria, Palestine, or I'm a Syro-Palestinian archaeologist who specializes in the classical periods. But, oh, um, but yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a very weird thing. But in my case, you know, uh, really, I, I kind of landed in this position um, because of my work, you know, on in the time of Jesus, basically in yeah. in the Holy Land, and and actually originally, especially because I was working on the site of Qumran, uh, the site where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and and I had kind of become known for that. So mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, you've we've talked a little bit about your you know your current field work, but do you mind you know just 
talking about what you're doing, what you're working on right now, or what you've been working on most recently? Um, sure. Uh, so, um, so my my in terms of field work, um, my my most recent and ongoing project is an excavation at a site called Hukok, which is located in Israel's Galilee, just a couple of miles inland, meaning west of Capernaum, which was the base of Jesus's Galilean ministry, and, and also mm -hmm. Migdal or Magdala, the hometown of Mary Magdalene, mm -hmm. which, like those sites, was a Jewish village in the time of Jesus. Uh, and Hukok was occupied for, for many periods throughout history, right up until 1948. And it was a Jewish village in the time of Jesus. Uh, I've been excavating there since 2011, with the hopes of answering a couple of research questions, mainly connected with what was the fate of Jewish villages like this when the Roman Empire became a Christian empire oh. and these Jewish communities came under Christian rule. Yeah. And the reason is because many of my colleagues in Israel think that Christian rule was oppressive to Jews yeah. and that these settlements declined uh, beginning in the fourth century. And my impression from the archaeology was always exactly the opposite. So yeah. I started excavating at Hukok to test to test the case. And indeed, at Hukok, we have results that support my view, which is that there's no decline, that these, it doesn't mean that every settlement is the same, but at Hukok, at least, this village clearly continued to flourish through the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries. And in fact, the sort of uh, highlight of, of what we've discovered is a monumental synagogue building that was built somewhere around the year 400 CE or AD, uh, that is paved with stunning mosaic floors, depicting mostly an array of biblical stories. Um, and it's gotten a, a huge amount of publicity. So we finished the excavation uh, of the synagogue last summer. And um, as planned all along, we have now stopped, I have now stopped excavating, and we are turning to preparing the final report, the final excavation report. So that's a process that will take years to complete, but that's that's yeah. the next step in this. So I guess I, this archaeological fieldwork was in a way kind of new, right? It was something that was counterintuitive to use that word again to what people thought of the of beforehand, right? Right. Well, again, what many of my colleagues, my Israeli yeah. colleagues, uh, think, and um, the site had never been excavated before. Nobody knew there was a synagogue like this there. I like to joke and say that had anybody had any idea that there were mosaics like this there, it wouldn't be jo Jody Magnus who excavated the sites, <laughs> right? Uh, but it was, you know, it was just one of these chance spectacular yeah. finds and and just, you know, very fortunate, right? Which happens in archaeology. And, you know, when I was researching, uh, you know, your profile and what you do, I also um, learned a little bit about your work at Masada, right? Mm -hmm. Could you yep. also, you know, talk about that? And Sure. So um, so in, in 1995, when I was still at Tufts, yeah. uh, I was invited to co-direct um, what are until now the first and only ever excavations in the Roman siege works at Masada. So just for those of your listeners who might not be familiar with yeah. Masada, it's a it's a mountain uh, overlooking the southwest shore of the Dead Sea that was fortified. This is a real, you know, eliminating huge amounts of detail here, but uh, that was fortified by King Herod the Great in the first century BCE. And uh, at the time of the first Jewish revolt against the Romans, so in six, beginning in 66 CE, uh, was taken over and occupied by bands of Jewish rebels and, and actually also families of Jewish refugees who held out there for the duration of the revolt. And even after the revolt officially ended with the fall of Jerusalem in 70, Masada continued to hold out. And it was the last 
uh, fortress to fall to the Romans. It fell in either 73 or 74. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the reason why it's famous is because the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, um, who has the seven volume work describing the first revolt, the Jewish war, ends his account with the fall of Masada and tells, tells us that um, the Jews there basically committed what's often described as a mass suicide yeah. um, so that the Romans could not, you know, could not capture them. Uh, there's a huge amount of controversy about the mass suicide story. And actually, it's not really even a mass suicide. It's a mass homicide in some way. But anyway, there's a huge amount of controversy about it. But that's why it's, you know, it's so well known. Um, mm -hmm. The the site, the top of the mountain, that is where the, the fortresses and Herod's palaces, mm -hmm. that was excavated by the famous Israeli archaeologist Yigal Yadin back in the 1960s. Um, but the the Roman siege works have been pretty much neglected. And so in 1995, I had the opportunity to co-direct these excavations with three Israeli colleagues mm -hmm. in the Roman siege works. And, and that was really, really interesting because the siege works at Masada are among the, the best preserved in the Roman world because mm -hmm. they're in the middle of the desert. They're built of stone, so they didn't disintegrate. And they've never been built over. So you can still see them very clearly today. And the excavations provide a lot of really interesting information on how the Romans conducted a siege hmm. when they were in the field. Because, of course, the Roman army was extremely effective because it was a professional army and um, operated in a kind of a very standardized manner. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, that was that was really interesting. And by the way, does not answer the question about the mass suicide, whether it occurred the way Josephus described or even occurred at all. Doesn't answer that question. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, I I um I was very fortunate to be able to participate in that. And then years later, I was invited by well, sort of badgered actually, but uh, invited by a. Uh, an editor at Princeton University Press to uh, write a book about Masada, which I did, and which was published in, what is it, 2019, I guess, 2018, 2019, anyway. Yeah. Uh, and so um, so there's kind of a full account of all of this. And it's it's written, that book is written for uh, a non-specialist audience. So it's accessible to people even, you know, who, who don't necessarily have background. Yeah, that, that, that that's great. Yeah, that's great for, you know, those like me. Who you know are trying well, to just get into the field and yeah, and a little bit about yeah that that's that's great yeah, and I'll, I'll probably you know I'll find that book and put the link to it because I'm sure a lot of uh, viewers uh, would like to read something that's not you know really technical and advanced yeah and, yeah that that yeah that could be great and yeah. another question that I like to you know ask all my uh, guests again is what has been you know your favorite or your most impactful archaeological excavation that you have been involved in and i know and i know that's a hard question right you've been involved in uh, a lot and a lot of them have been very impactful but if if you could pinpoint one which one would that be and why well it's actually not a hard question because it would have to be hukok i mean would. yeah, yeah. hukok yeah. is is just uh I mean, I, I guess in a way, I you know, before Hukok, when people would ask me that question, I always had a hard time answering it. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, what I think is important is not necessarily what other people would think is important. Mm -hmm. um, but but Hukok is just the, the discoveries are just so spectacular and so mind blowing and mm -hmm. literally transforming the way that we view, um, you know, late antique Judaism. Um, mm -hmm. But also we have we have a rebuilding of the original synagogue in the late medieval period, the Mamluk period, the 14th century, which is the first uh, uh, remains, archaeological remains of a synagogue of this period ever discovered in Israel. Mm -hmm. So we've got, I mean, we just have, you know, 
all sorts of different uh, fines that I we don't have time to go into and we don't need to go into. But um, but I think that, you know, by far it would have to be it would have even the, not just not to take away from any of the other sites or excavations, but it would it would have to be Hukok. And that's why I, I would like to explain that's why the process of publication here is so important. You know, people people ask me, well, why aren't you continuing to excavate? And the fact is, I could excavate there for years. It it, it The site is big. We didn't finish, for example, the courtyard adjacent to the synagogue. There's the ancient village. There's, I mean, there's tons more that could be excavated. Mm -hmm. um, and I deliberately stopped here because what people don't realize is that the goal of archaeology is not excavation, it's publication. Mm -hmm. uh, because um, when we excavate, as, as I have, we are hoping ideally to answer uh, research questions that we come into the field with. But archaeology is a science, but it's not an exact science. Mm -hmm. In the exact sciences, the goal is to replicate the experiment. But in archaeology, you can't replicate the experiment. Once you've excavated those remains and take them out, you can never put them back the way they were. Yeah. So that's why when we go into the field and excavate, we record everything that we do in every by every means possible. But then afterwards, you have to publish all the data. Because if you don't publish the data, you make it you it's not accessible to anybody else. And in effect, what you've done as an archaeologist is destroy the past in the name of science. So uh so the process of publication is is a long involved process. It's much less sexy than the excavation itself. People like to fund excavations. They're not particularly keen on funding the publication process. Yeah. But the publication process is actually the most important part of, of the archaeological. Uh, process and um, and I deliberately stopped because we have so much material having excavated now since 2011 that uh, if we don't stop we won't be able to get it published and that would be irresponsible of me as an archaeologist as a professional archaeologist so um, so that's that's what we're going to be doing from this point on and I think that point you bring up is really key right R recording is a way of preserving the past right and that's our best chance at preserving the past and which bring is a perfect segue really to my next question um, about, you know, during your excavations, um, what do you do to, to ensure you preserve the culture, right? You talked about how important it is. And of course, after you do that whole re recording process and the writing process, which is, which does a lot to help preserve the culture, but during that excavation, what does that look like? Right. And, 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 you know, I mean, that's a great question and it's so complicated as I'm sure you know. Yeah. So first of all, we need to distinguish between the remains that stay in the field, basically built things, right? Mm -hmm. What we would call features mm -hmm. versus artifacts, the things that are portable and get removed, right? So uh, artifacts, um, the way that, that we work, there's, there's, there's no way that we can keep every single thing that we find. We just don't have, I, at least I can't. I mean, we have... I, Anybody who works in the Eastern Mediterranean and 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 Near East knows that we have so much pottery, for example, that yeah. you know there's just no way. So uh, so a lot of stuff actually gets discarded after it gets recorded, mm -hmm. and the stuff that gets saved uh, are are ultimately the things that uh, tend to have an important context or are um, or are unique finds in and of themselves. And those generally go into storage and get studied. And in my case, because I'm working in Israel, it's the state of Israel that uh, has possession of everything. Mm -hmm. So when we finish the process of publishing, everything that we have in storage will be turned over, that, that we're publishing will be turned over to the state of Israel, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So whatever pieces of pottery we publish 
The coins are already in storage in the Israel Antiquities Authority. Uh, so all of that belongs to the state of Israel by definition. And um, I know in other host countries, you know, it's it's very much the same thing. Um, the, the stuff in the field is a little bit uh, more complicated because of course, you know, anything, again, anything that we've removed is gone. Yeah. And so there's there's kind of a, you know, as an archaeologist, you you kind of make these uh, judgment decisions on exactly what am I going to remove and what am I going to keep there? Because once it's gone, it's gone. And in our case at Hukok, that was particularly acute because we had the late the late medieval synagogue that was literally built on top of and expanded the original synagogue and was no less important in many ways. Um, and yet, of course, what everybody wants to see at Hukok are the mosaics of the original synagogue. So to get yeah. to the mosaics, we had to remove the medieval building yeah. above or the medieval floor. Um, and so what, what we ultimately did was to remove most of the late medieval floor. The, the walls are still there, but we re removed most of the late medieval floor and we left one segment of it in situ where we had a couple of teeny little patches of mosaics that belonged to the late medieval floor, the only ones that we had. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping, and 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 so, and then we went down to the original synagogue. Now, um, we didn't dig below the synagogue in most in most cases. There are places where we could we couldn't, and um, there's another judgment. I mean, in the end, somebody might want to come along because I'm done there. You know, somebody else might want to come come along. Presumably, an Israeli archaeologist would want to come along and dig underneath and see is there an earlier synagogue building? What do we have underneath it? You know, that kind of thing. We didn't we didn't do that. Um, the site now, when we're done, we've turned over to the Israel Antiquities Authority and and the Jewish National Fund, Hebrew Karen Kayem at Israel, which the, the Jewish National Fund actually owns the land on which the site sits. And they have a plan together with the Israel Antiquities Authority to develop the site for tourism. And particularly, they're interested, of course, in the mosaics. But if they do develop the site for tourism, it will be not only the synagogue with the mosaics, but they'll have to work more generally on how they develop the site. But that's their plan. Now, at this point, I'm out of it. In other words, my 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 excavation permit is over. I'm done. Ex you know, except for publication, and and the site is now now belongs to the state of Israel. It's in their hands, and it, you know how they want to develop it, if they want to develop it, what they do. They may consult with me, but that's ultimately up to them. Um, I will mention that in Israel, to get a, a permit to dig, which I had to do right from the start and renew it every year, I had to you know fill out a lot of documentation. And among the documentation was to uh, show that I have a site conservator, a full-time site conservator on staff, which we which we did, which was very costly. Uh, but um, which we did, and um, especially, of course, for the mosaics, but not only, because we also have uh, colorful wall paintings, pe painted plaster in the synagogue, the original synagogue. So um, so I had a full-time site conservator working with us in the field as we were uncovering the mosaics, as we were uncovering in situ painted plaster to make sure all of that was treated, documented properly, you know, uh, that it would be preserved. Um, and again, all of that now is is simply the site. When we when we ended the excavation, everything got backfilled. The mm -hmm. the mosaics are all now backfilled, and that's the best way that we could preserve them in the meantime. And again, now it will be up to the state of Israel, the Israeli authorities, to decide what they want to do, you know, and how they want to do it. Right. So they 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 were actually advancing quite well with the plans mm -hmm. uh, this summer, which was my last season of excavation. 
now, of course, with the war, I, I have no idea what's going on. I haven't I haven't heard. I can only surmise that uh, everything's on hold for yeah. now. And, um, you know, I'm sure that I, I, I'm sure I, I feel pretty confident that the site will be developed for tourism at some point. But I, I don't think it's going to happen as soon as it might have without the war. Yeah. yeah. And and before we touch on about that topic on the war, because that's something that I would, I would like to talk about. Um, um, can we go back to something you said, you know, about your relationship with the government, right, with is with Israel in this scenario, but in general, right, whether an archaeologist is working in Greece, Israel, um, anywhere in the world, how important is that relationship with the government in ensuring cultural preservation? And, you know, how do how do each respective governments pro like, you know, processes dictate how good the culture is preserved, if that makes sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I, I can't really speak to other countries because things yeah. operate differently. And as you know, in different countries, so for example, in Greece, the um, process of getting a permit goes through the American School of Classical Studies at Athens, and the Greeks uh, give a specific number of, of permits each yeah. year for excavation or survey or whatever to the various foreign mm -hmm. schools. In Israel, it doesn't work like that. Um, the permits, I, I obtained my permit directly from the Israel Antiquities Authority. Uh, but, um, and 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 there are, well, they're virtually, well, I'm one of the only, I've been one of the only excavations in Israel that is not uh, sponsored or co-sponsored by uh, any Israeli organization or body. The uh, excavation permit was given to me alone. The, the sponsoring body is my university, the University of North Carolina. Um, and that's unusual. Most, uh, most foreigners, most non-Israelis, when they work in Israel, uh, will partner either with somebody at the Israel Antiquities Authority or one of the local universities. And in fact, uh, from now on, apparently, the Israel Antiquities Authority is mandated that all foreign archaeologists have to have an Israeli partner. So I, the, the situation I was in apparently will not, will not be possible in the future. It would have been if I continued digging there. I could have continued having been grandfathered in, so to speak. But uh, but anyway, I'm I'm done with the excavation. Um, so so again, you know, for anybody who applies for a dig permit in Israel, whether it's somebody from one of the local Israeli universities. Mm -hmm. or a foreign archaeologist, you fill out pretty much the same paperwork. And, and among that paperwork are forms and documentation that show that you have not just a site conservator, but also money set aside for conservation and plans and, and all of that. So, um, and then, you know, if if they're satisfied, they'll give you the permit, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of the way that it works there. That doesn't mean that it's uniformly enforced, just like yeah. anywhere else. Things yeah. aren't always enforced right. uniformly. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I just I was just wondering because I think it's interesting to make that connection between, you know, the government, the local government and preservation. But yeah, moving on to, you know, the final question. Um Israel obviously is, is very rich in cultural heritage. Um, and during this time of war, you know, in Israel and Palestine, um, there's a lot of news has been heard around the world, of course, but in regards to cultural heritage and what what is you know what has been occurring in regards to all that cultural heritage in Israel and if any, what have the preservation processes looked like? Yeah, I mean, I know it's a great question, and I I actually can't tell you because I haven't been there since this summer. So, yeah. and I, I it's not like I have a constant feeder of information here from from yeah. colleagues in yeah. Israel. 
So I just know, you know, little snippets of things that aren't necessarily, um, you know, giving a bigger picture. Uh, so, and, and also just my own surmising. I mean, I, I, I know that my some of my Israeli colleagues who work in archaeology are continuing to work. I don't know how much work is being done in the field mm -hmm. at this point. Um, I I do know that that some sites and uh, some things have been damaged during the war. I this is again just incidental. I know, for example, that two storage containers uh, filled with material from a major excavation in the southern part of Israel were completely wiped out by uh, a random rocket from Gaza. And all that material is gone now. Right. I actually was sent photos. It's pretty amazing to see. Uh, but, um, but you know, I, I would just, I would guess that, that like everything else, everybody's focus is on the human toll at this point and, and not so much, you know, focusing on the archaeology. And, you know, at some point, maybe people will start paying more attention to the to the damage being done to archaeological sites, uh, but um, but now I don't have like an over you know an overarching answer or picture that I can give you except to say that you know wars no matter where they are are always uh, bad for archaeology yeah. Um, yeah. and and archaeological sites and cultural heritage. So um, yeah, I mean I I can only imagine that that like everything else. I, that, look, there's. I mean, Gaza is filled with archaeological sites, right? The Gaza Strip is filled yeah. with archaeological sites. Um, so for sure, everything going on in Gaza right now must be causing a huge amount of damage. I mean, I I don't know if your listeners realize that Gaza was originally founded by the Philistines. It was one of the five cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. It was a and it was then from that point on a major port in the Mediterranean mm -hmm. through the Roman period. Extremely important. And so there's tons of of archaeology in that area, and and you have to imagine that there's a lot of damage there, right? right? And but but again, I know you know it kind of sounds it sounds trite to say because there's so much of a human of cost, uh, so much of a human toll, and so you know to sit and say, oh, the archaeological sites are being yeah. damaged, you know, when we know how much suffering is going on among you know among people, it's you know, so anyway. Yeah, well, that, that's a great point. I think, you know, a lot of times it's many years after the war that people start to realize what's yeah. going on with um, the right. artifacts. But yeah, I mean, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, to, <laughs> well, on and, that, and to, yeah, and, and so um, to end on a, a little bit of a, of a, yeah. a happier note. Exactly. So uh, for your for your uh, listeners, um, you, you did a nice little plug of my Masada book. I actually have a, a book coming out in... Hmm, two months in March uh, on Jerusalem called okay. Jerusalem through the ages from its beginnings to the crusades, which is also intended for, it's a little bit, it's long and it's a little bit detailed, but it's also intended to introduce people who are not specialists. And uh, uh, you know, um, it's going to be published by Oxford university press. Um, and uh, yeah. So anybody interested in, in the story of Jerusalem, that that's where I would, yeah, I'll I'll get all that um in the link for this um in the bio of this podcast episode. So yeah, if you guys are interested in uh, those books or even yeah. just learning more about Professor Magnus, yeah, please feel free to you know look look below. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, and it, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you. So Thanks much. for having me.